Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter, the podcast which takes a good look at why mothers matter so much to their children, why mothers matter in society and what matters to mothers themselves. Hello, today's podcast is with Diana Dean, who is the research director of What About the Children, which is a charity which focuses on the never-ending, never-changing needs of the under-threes. Well, never-ending as well, but never-changing needs of the under-threes, although she is talking in a personal capacity today. Um, I've called this podcast Mothers and Childcare, but it's actually really looking at what's going on in a mother's brain and largely in a child's brain when they are bonding together in those first few years. But uh, on this particular episode, I'm looking at what happens when that is uh, disrupted away uh, in a way by separation, which often happens these days because of childcare. Um, At the moment, it's really important because all the politicians in the current election are talking about more and more hours of childcare and so-called free childcare. We know that they don't give enough money to the childcare providers to make it really free. But um, the issue is that there is a drive towards separating children at an ever younger age for longer and longer hours and not, as I was talking about in the previous podcast, supporting the parents who want to um, to look after their children themselves until at least the age of three. Uh, There's quite a lot of science in this podcast. Um, If you'd like a copy of any of the research, um, uh, Diana does refer to the name and the date of the research quite often. But if there's something in particular you're interested in, please email me on mothersmatter at outlook.com and I can send you um, at least a list of research that Diana has referred to in the past and uh, hopefully dig out particular items of research she mentions here. So it's it's quite an encouraging listen if you are a mother who's able to be with your children full time. Um, It might be a bit difficult if you are separated from your children for um, reasons beyond your control. And if you do have a choice about whether to um, give up work and spend more time with your children, then it might well be worth having a listen to this. Diana, thank you so much for meeting with me today. I'm really, I am really excited. This is one of my favourite podcast topics of the year, I think, because I have spoken with you in the past about cortisol, about the issues to do with early separation of babies and mothers. Mm -hmm. And you know an awful lot of the science behind this. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you, but I'd like you to start by telling us about your experience with playgroups and how you got into all of this area. Well, yes, how I got into the work was sort of I backed into it rather peculiarly because I ran a mother and baby and toddler group a long time ago, and uh, it started off as a mother and baby and toddler group. And over the years, it became a carer and toddler group. And the mothers gradually wafted away, and we were left with an interesting assortment of lovely people and carers, nannies, grandpas, grandmothers, all sorts. And that was fine, but I did notice that the behavior of the children had radically altered. This was a surprise to me. It dawned on me quite slowly, but over time, I could see that 
with their mothers, the children had basically been pretty sparky and pretty happy and pretty content. And they were on a range of behaviours because there's a range of characters and personalities. But after 10 or 12 years, when the mothers had mostly gone, the behaviour of the children was not scattered across the spectrum, but seemed to have settled into extreme corners more. There was the group that was disinterested and, and a bit quiet and thumb-sucking and not taking a lot of interest. And then there was another group that were wildly rushing around, biting everything and everyone. Uh, and there was a lack of the contentment, the basic contentment that I had noticed. Of course, there are exceptions. I mean, nothing is extreme. But there was a definite change in the behaviour of the children over those 10 to 14 years. And that's what got me interested. I thought, well, why is this happening? What is it? Why are the children definitely a bit different? And then I, there was no Google in those days. And I saw a newspaper headline that said, a mother's love alters a baby's brain. I thought, that is very interesting. Because one of the things I'd noticed was the different ways the children had been treated in this group by the mothers and by the carers. Quite definitely, the mothers, on the whole, there are always exceptions, but on the whole, the mothers treated their babies and toddlers like lovers. They looked into their eyes, they stroked them, they cooed, they were absorbed, they, they adored them. And the childminders and the other carers, the, the grandparents were often very loving as well. But the carers and childminders treated them like little friends. They, they weren't unkind at all. They were, they were quite kindly to them. They put their little coats on, but when they put their little jackets on, they were often talking to their friends or perhaps uh, slightly distracted, there wasn't this absorption, this eye contact, this total involvement with the little one. They, they were just not the same as the mothers. It was clear the child was being treated differently. So when I read that headline, A Mother's Love Alters a Child's Brain, I thought that was probably something I should look into. This is 20 years ago now. And this is what set me on the trail of the research as to what was going on and if there really were alterations to the brain and genuine changes to the behaviours of the children. And were they long term? Did they matter? Did they matter? Did it matter that they were treated differently or was it just a temporary glitch? And that's what set me going onto this whole fascinating area into the neurobiology of a little child's development. So you're the um, research director for What About the Children? 
But um, today we're going to be talking just in a personal Yes, capacity. I'm not speaking yeah. on behalf of Watch at all. I'm speaking as an individual with my own personal views, and that's very important to stress because What About the Children has its own set of, of um, outlook and belief and so on, and that's fine. Well, not beliefs, that's the wrong word, because it's not political and it's not religious. Um, but I have quite personal strong views here that, that are not necessarily held by the charity, so I'm going to speak on behalf of my own opinion and what I've learned myself, but really. What, what it does mean, though, is that what you do um, with WATCH is that you do a lot of the um, biological, the science behind what's going on in babies' brains and you f they you focus they focus on the under threes that's right, right. yes yeah. yes i do i i research from a huge range of journals international journals from across the world from a wide range of disciplines to do with infant development and it can be medical psychological uh, social i mean biochemistry, psycho-neuroendocrinology, all sorts of papers that are mm. so interesting, but many of them are quite complex and scientific and hard to follow. I have a scientist living in my house, my husband, who <laughs> is constantly giving supervisions and helping and understanding of this, but I have a wonderful team of four science writers who take these papers that I think look particularly interesting and relevant, and they write summaries of them in language for the intelligent layperson and these are all put on the what about the children website and so you can read this quite complex neurobiological research and the way children's brains are affected by the way they're treated in these early years and this is a very vital area for people to learn about that the, the biochemistry and the structure and the architecture of the brain is, is affected by a little baby's treatment. Well, can we start then by talking about what's going on um, in children under three and why it's so important those, those first three years, and then also look at what's going on between children and their mothers in those first three years, if you can separate it at all. Right. Well, I think we go back to when a baby's born, how important the mother is. It's rather sweet, actually. I read only a paper in 2019 to Bernardo about, uh, they call the expression rooming in, we don't do that anymore. It's about whether a baby stays with the mother by the bed after being, giving birth and or whether, as used to be the case, the baby was removed so the mother can go to sleep and have a good rest. And this research was done recently and they removed, they followed what happened if you removed the little newborn away to another room so the mother could sleep. And they found that in the morning, the baby who had been removed from the mother had twice as much cortisol, the stress chemical in its system, than the baby who'd slept beside the mother. I mean, that, that is so strange. You sort of think, well, how can you know? I mean, uh, this really amazed me. But it, it's right from the word go. The presence of the mother is so important. Um, and she didn't even have to do anything. It's just her presence. And actually, that continues. The research goes on to show how important the mother's voice is to the infant. That, for instance, in the early months, Beauchemin's work showed that 
It's only the mother's voice that stimulates the language learning center of the brain. No other voice does that. Not the father's, not the midwife's, not the granny's, just the mother's voice. I mean, how powerful is that? And then some other research showed that the mother's voice right through infancy and childhood up to the age of eight or nine has an effect on the brain responses of the child and releases comforting opioids, oxytocin, all these things. I mean, if a little child falls over and hurts their knee and cries and the mother comforts it, her voice releases all this and it actually reduces the pain. Um, you know, so this, this myth about the mother kissing better, actually there's a biochemical truth to it. It's wonderful. So this is a natural thing a mother does. Uh, I mean, you, you hug and cuddle a child if they're distressed, you hug and cuddle it anyway. Um, but I'm, I'm going further forward there. I've gone out of babyhood and right through infancy to eight or nine, but I'm just emphasizing the importance of the mother here. And what else is, in, how much is the baby's brain developing in ah, those first yes. few years? Yes, that's interesting. When the baby's born, it has all its brain cells and neurons, billions and billions of them, but it doesn't have the connections between them, the synapses. This is like a sort of spider web connecting all the neurons and building the brain and making it all work. And these connections are made as, as to how the child is treated, if there is 100% emotional neglect, like you had with the Romanian orphans, very few of these connections are made. And sadly, the neurons that are not taken up and used in that first three to five year period, the cells actually die off, a process known as, as apoptosis. And there's this kind of window of, of when you can use up these uh, neurons with synaptic links and if if they're not used then they will die and the brains of these poor Romanian orphans are so much smaller and whole areas the frontal cortex hardly develops at all there's a big gap there that's extreme but we've learned from this about development that it's very important that there is not emotional neglect that emotional sustenance and regular love and regular emotional feeding and adoration and all this cooing and stroking and loving and eye contact that you give with a baby and a toddler and so on is vital for their brain growth. Um, and, and if they're separated from their mothers for long periods, very early in life, often, um, a lot of this benefit is, is, is reduced so what impact might that have on a baby's brain then? If it, if it has been in, a sort of in conditions where it's been separated from the mother, what might not be happening or what might be happening that wouldn't be the case if it was um, with its mother? Well, the they're, they're very stressed in a nursery. There's, there's a lot of things that, that are stressful. The first main stress is separation from actually the source of life itself, which the mother is. Um, formula milk and fathers and, and wonderful families and so on are, are good, great, important and massively uh, significant. But in primitive times, without the mother, the baby would probably have died. She was the source of food and life. There was no formula milk. Um, and this, I'm going back a long way. But there's still the, the lizard part of the brain that, that has that 
instinct in the baby, and that's why it'll yell so much for its food. And now you take it away from its source of, of, of its main source of love and sustenance, and you put it in a room full of, of strange little children, or um, and there's constant noise, uh, and the sort of a kind of conformity that the group set up requires, which you can't possibly fit into, of course, and and you're separated from from your familiar surroundings and and you've often been got up earlier than you wanted to be and you've been rushed there not necessarily but there's a lack of variety in the environment and and you're often coping with other distressed crying toddlers I mean it's not always that bad I'm painting a bit of a picture here but the point is it's stressful. I mean, think of an old person being put into a, a home with unfamiliar people and unfamiliar staff. I mean, they're adult, but it's stressful for them. With a baby who hasn't actually got a proper stress management system, it, it's um, they're haywire. They're all over the place. So they, they release some cortisol, the stress chemical. Um, because they're stressed and, and they know, we know this because it's been measured many papers have been written about this uh, Arnott et al and uh, Vanis and Dawn and people they've, they've done the work and they've put the Q-tip into the corner of the mouth and taken the saliva sample without the baby even knowing so they weren't stressed in the experiment uh, and they've discovered that the cortisol levels are raised above the child when it's at home and also that at the end of the day, in nurseries, the levels of cortisol are rising, whereas at home the levels of cortisol are falling. And another problem here is that naturally when parents pick their children up from nurseries, they, they want to play with them and enjoy them and be with them. But actually, the child is often exhausted and stressed out and needs a very quiet, soothing time and feeding and putting to bed. And actually, usually the opposite to that happens. Mm. And so there's this great release of cortisol. And it's not necessarily huge. It's not necessarily raised violently, but it's raised above what it would normally have been at home. So that means other biochemical responses start to kick in. And one aspect is, is that it acts a bit like adrenaline. And we know that adrenaline sort of... It, is shut down various systems um, in order to have the fight-flight reaction. And um, it knocks the immune system. The immune system is compromised. And that's very interesting. Watamura does some very interesting work on that. Uh, even in, as old as three, they found the, that in children from good homes in high-quality childcare still had a compromised immune system. Mm -hmm. So we know that happens. And also there, there is a, a problem with the digestive system. Some very interesting work done here. There's almost a dose-response curve that the, the more time spent in childcare, the greater the propensity to obesity. Some very important research here too. And if that is associated with a disruption in circadian rhythms, that's if our, the sleep process is being disrupted for various reasons, got up too early or there's difficult shift times, then not only is there an increase in fat cells, but the actual fat cells themselves grow larger. Mm. So this could be happening as well, that, that too much, too early childcare for too long could be a precursor to obesity.
Children attending centre-based childcare are 65% more likely to be overweight obese compared with children having only parental childcare. This increase in overweight obesity is incrementally related to the number of hours spent in centre-based childcare and amounts to a 9% increase for each five hours per week spent in childcare. And that's, and that's from uh, Jeff Roy, 2012. Childcare and overweight or obesity over 10 years of follow-up. And did you say, um, when we were talking earlier, you said about maybe parents might feed their children twice? Yes, uh, yeah. you, you can. that's an, another problem that can happen, that, that you have a better metabolic rate. You can have um, also early ending to breastfeeding very often um, mm. because they've got to be fed by bottles um, if they go away from the mother, obviously. And I don't want to offend people either. I mean, I don't want to tread on too many toes, but this is such interesting work. And, and you read these things and you think, wow, I didn't know that, you know, that, that, that too many long hours from early years in childcare could be a precursor to obesity because there's a massive rise in obesity mm. and that brings with it diabetes and all sorts of things. Mm. Well, going back to cortisol, uh, my small understanding of it is that with children's cortisol, baby's cortisol, having the mother around can actually help manage stress. So the, yes. the absence of the mother is a double it yes, causes stress yes. and she's not there to manage yeah, she's the not stress. there to manage it but what's, yeah. what's going on when you have physiologically when why is cortisol a problem why is it a problem to have higher cortisol well i mean a small amount of stress is all right if you can manage it but the problem with babies is that they haven't got a properly formed stress management system the stress is managed for them so that when a baby cries and is freaked out and stressed, the mother picks the child up and soothes it and calms it. And they're both releasing oxytocin and bonding with that. That fights back. That, uh, that is the sort of enemy of cortisol. Then it damps it down, damps down the stress. And the mother is doing this constantly. So you get cortisol release, oxytocin release, cortisol release, oxytocin release over the months and... and and into the first and the second year and so on. And if the mother is constantly soothing or the child is constantly soothed by a loved carer, let's get that straight. Um, but there must be this constant soothing. Then by the age of two and a half, or between two and three, but every child is different. When they're stressed and they release the cortisol, the brain says, ah, I know what to do. And it releases the oxytocin of its own accord. It has learned to self-soothe, to self-calm, to self-regulate. But that will only happen if the baby is constantly and reliably loved and soothed by someone who really cares and loves it and understands its needs and understands uh, when it's emotionally fraught and, and realises what they have to do and what the baby needs. And then you will get a self-regulation stress management system in firmly implanted in their little brains. And without this constant, close, loving, secure love, affection and contact, you will perhaps have a flakier system. Mm. And is there some link between higher levels of cortisol um, so, so when the baby's being stressed, if she's or he, she's not learned to self-soothe because they're too young, mm -hmm. then their stress levels are going to stay high. And what impact does that have on the brain and the body and so on? Well, you you get this problem of of um, cortisol if there's a lot of uh, stress that is not controlled. And I do say that, 
You know, it has to be uncontrolled, constant stress, not, not bits here and there. Um, then that will affect and actually inhibit protein synthesis that you need for brain growth. Mm. And the brain is growing at its most rapid at this time. I mean, you know, billions of synapses every day are being formed. Um, the, the size of the, the number of neurons and the number of synapses is just beyond imagination, but it's billions. But if you have protein synthesis inhibited by excess cortisol, um, particularly the frontal cortex in the first year or so, which is developing then, which is to do with empathy and reading social signals and memory and concentration and social interaction and so on, that's the part of the brain that can actually be a bit inhibited. Um, and, and so if you've had babies who've been in group care for long hours from an early age, say 35, 40, 50 hours a week from early in the first year, um, this will be quite a serious reaction. So with the um, talking politics for a minute, all the government, all the politicians are recommending more hours of childcare at a younger age. Uh, Crazy. Like for two-year-olds, for example. So you're saying, is it 90% of the brain that's formed by the time of Well, there's, I've seen various figures in various papers. Some say 80%, some say nearly 90%, some say 85%. But it's between 80 and 90%. Um, or perhaps 80% of the I don't know exactly. A lot, a lot of it is um, thought, uh, right. That By three, by 36 months, the brain is about 85% adult size and maybe slightly bigger. I mean, that's amazing. But we all develop at different speeds as well. And that's why, you know, some say all this development, everything takes place by the age of two. Well, an awful lot does take place by the age of two, but also children develop at different rates, which is why, personally, I think we ought to go into two and a half to three before we say, yup, they're fine to go into group care. When they can talk, when they can interact properly. I mean, babies don't really socialize they love to see other people and they love to see other babies and they stretch out and touch their faces and they're very happy to be with other people but they don't actually sort of play organized games mm -hmm. and they do love a familiar need to take off from I, i've seen this fabulous fast-moving video of a of a baby in a, in a baby and toddler group and and it starts doing little journeys away from the mother and then they're bigger and bigger journeys away and they're like a star they go out in all directions and the distances get further and further and further and if you see it on a video it's hilarious speeded up always coming back to the mother's knee until eventually by the end of the hour that they've really explored mm. but I know in my group when it, they were not with their mothers that 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 great mood of exploration wasn't really there. There was a sense of aimlessness. And that was mm. another thing that struck me in the group. The sort of purposelessness and aimlessness. They, they didn't. But, you know, to be fair, some, some of the minders were lovely and, and, and good and careful, but they, they weren't all. Mm. And, of course, the, the grandparents were, were, were loving. But it, we don't know what degree of stress each child is experiencing. This is the, the knowledge we don't have. We don't know how high the levels of cortisol are in each child. With some, they may not be affected much at all. We, we know that. And some are greatly affected. 
And, and th this is an area that, that, because we don't know, we flounder around and we hope that they're all children who are not affected and, mm -hmm. and that people saying these things are just scaremongering and you know, it's just not that bad at all, you know, really. Ah. Uh, and honestly, we, we don't know, don't know a lot about the, the amounts and quantities. Well, just going back to what you were saying about the baby exploring from the mother's knee, one of the arguments people always put up for childcare, for external centre-based childcare, is it gives them, makes them independent. But actually what you're saying <laughs> is the children are less... I mean, first of all, they don't need to be no. independent at two. No, you but, can't impose. You know, you say they're actually braver and they'll explore more yes. with a loving, caring, yes. known yes. individual. They will there. become far more independent when they're with their mothers in those early months. Yes, yes absolutely. Um, and anyway, babies aren't meant to be independent. Toddlers yeah. aren't meant to be independent. They're terribly dependent. Of course they are. And, and the, the more loving, reassuring, adoring time they have, the greater their resilience, the greater their stress management, the greater their independence will be. Mm. And uh, I, I, I remember with my own, own son that uh, I, he said something to me when he was about 11 or 12. He, I, I think I was practically hurt. He said, I don't really need you at all, you know. Uh, uh, I thought, what on earth is he saying? And I thought, well, actually, that's not bad when you think about it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and, and some children grow quite needy. Mm. Um, well, if they don't have their needs met. Yes, but I mean, I didn't know about all this when I was bringing mm. up my babies. I just, you know, I was very fortunate I, I could stay with my baby, but we were not well off. I, I used to save the family allowance so we could have a week away in the summer. I remember that was... Can I, can I afford to put the family allowance on one side? And that, that just saved in the building society. And it just, mm. wow, that was just enough to live on. So we, we weren't wealthy people, no. Mm. Um, but we, that, that was in, in the 70s and 80s. And, and I know now it is much, much harder. And I know now that mothers just, oh, they don't have the financial choices that we had. And that's why it's so important that the government recognises this, it recognises the need for mothers who want to stay with their children, that they can do so. I, I met only a couple of weeks ago a delightful lady in a, in a car park. I saw her struggling with a pushchair. She was parked near me and I, I just went to give a hand and we got chatting and she had this beautiful little baby and she was obviously a doting mother. And she was really distressed because she was committed to do a PhD and, and she had to be about to part with this little baby. And she said, you know, nobody told me how I would feel for my baby. I had no idea how much I would love it and how little I wanted ever to be parted from it. Mm. She said, I didn't know it would be like this. I would never have made these plans and arrangements if I'd known. Mm. And I said to her, well, why don't you try and put aside your PhD for two years and say, can I come back to it or something? She said, Do you think I could? Do you think that's possible? I said, well, Cambridge University is quite good about that. And, and she sort of bucked up a bit and, mm. and the mm. thought that she perhaps didn't have to leave her baby but it was this, this lack of realisation that when a child's born, your, your brain floods with oxytocin. And, and you are, this is normally, hopefully, if, if, if you've had a decent babyhood yourself, it doesn't happen with everybody, but probably 90%, they have this huge dose of oxytocin when their child's born that's released. 
and, and bonds you to the baby so that why, you know, not particularly a maternal person like myself, and I'm sort of, oh, I'm going to be hopeless. I'm hopeless with babies. And yet the moment mine was born, wow, you're totally transformed. Oxytocin does its work mm. and, and changes you. And people don't realise they will be changed. As I say, there, there are people this doesn't happen to, and that's very sad, but on the whole, it does. Mm. And, and this remarkable change takes place. But here's another problem that the research is tending to show that if, if there is a lot of separation in infancy, then fewer oxytocin receptors are being formed so that when the child grows up and releases oxytocin, when they have their own child, if there are fewer receptors, there are fewer places for it to bind. So they'll, they'll eliminate it from the body and, and the bonding won't be quite as secure. And actually, this is quite important because we also release oxytocin during sex to bond us to our mates. So if we haven't got a, a good big capital of oxytocin receptors formed by strong bonding in infancy, then we may be finding that our bonding systems are flakier as a society so that when this oxytocin is released in our adult lives, it may not be as powerful as it should be. And is, are you saying that that could happen if the um, baby hasn't had the time to develop the oxytocin that it needs with the mother because it's been taken away too soon as such? Or well, well too soon? It, this is very difficult because we, we, we know about the research in rats. There's, there's numbers for that, <laughs> that, that a, a rat pup that's removed from its mother for three hours a day Later on, when the rat is euthanized, sorry about this, but they, they count the oxytocin receptors and they found that the little baby rat who was removed for three hours a day had 250% fewer oxytocin receptors than the that pups that had stayed with the mother. Now, that's actually huge. Something's going on here. I mean, yeah. we, are, we are different. We are humans. But many of these animal systems work throughout the animal kingdom. And it is very likely that we are compromising our bonding systems with separating mother and child too often, too long, too early. It's just a, a matter of this mass, massive synaptic links. And the synaptic links have to be strong. Um, so there has to be repeat behaviours for the synapses to be strongly built in the brain to create a strong and healthy brain. It's a bit like the building of a rope bridge over a canyon. You chuck one piece of rope over and that's not strong enough. You chuck two and it's better, but it's still not strong enough. And then you chuck three and four and then you get this firm connection. And that is how these synaptic uh, growths happen, that the, the firm connection takes place with, with the repeated helpful behavior or repeated experiences or whatever. And, and if you don't get the emotional sustenance in particular areas that you need, then, then maybe these synaptic links are weaker or not built at all or so on. And that's, that's when you'll get some apoptosis. But uh, we don't know how much stress causes how much synaptic mm. reduction and so on. We don't, we don't know a lot. We just know that, that along these lines, the, the build of the brain goes on mm. and, and that we do know aspects of the, the mother's love and care or the, the, the loved main carer's love and care will be building all the time. The, the baby has to be with someone they really love and trust and who knows and understands them and, and who understands their little signs and their methods of communicating. I mean, if a baby is sitting with you on the carpet at home and it 
it bangs the curtains and points to the curtain. If you're with the child, you know that the child is saying, yes, we saw a spider there yesterday, didn't we? And it ran across the floor and, and wasn't that funny? And you run your fingers across the carpet and the child responds. So you know what its little signals are. If you're not with a child, these little signals are often missed and the child doesn't necessarily feel that communication is worthwhile because they're not getting the response they want. Is that one of the, is it, saying that, is that one of the aspects of any one-to-one care, not necessarily just the mother's, but mm. the mother's voice, is the ability of the adult to put into words what the baby can't express, and then the baby learns those words, so, oh, yes, you are very tired, or, oh, it is hot in yes, here. Yes, yes, this identification, in, this, this yes. deep empathy and identification with the baby, yes, and, and a mother has that second to none, but, but somebody yes. who's constantly with the baby too, um, and the father is terrific. I mean, let's not forget dear fathers. I mean, they are so important. They are different. They're not substitute mothers. They're fathers. Their role is a bit different, but it's, it's so special and wonderful. And they are so utterly vital for development, particularly in the second year. It, quite, it's quite difficult for them in the first year because it's very much mother-baby and breastfeeding and, and the mother getting used to the baby not being in her anymore. And but and the father often feels a bit de trop, but, but they, they, their love is, is very precious then and they can be very tender and they, they have oxytocin release as well and sometimes, well, in fact, their testosterone levels do lower around about childbirth and so on, although they do recoup later. Um, but in the second year, the, the father tends to roughhouse more and chuck the baby around and be a bit more daring and, and the mother's will say, oh, don't do that, don't do that. But, but it's really good for the child to be stressed in a safe environment. This is really good for development. Um, that, that they're sort of, yeah, they, they sort of shriek and laugh as they're thrown in the air. They're oh, it's a bit, <laughs> bit worrying, but but it's fine because they're safe and they're they're smiling and they're loved and they're secure. And this again increases resilience mm. and increases all the stress management aspects of, of the child. And it's a wonderful thing the father does because they must be allowed to be a father. Mm. and not a substitute mother they're a Mm. father I I don't know if you told me but I remember someone saying that the role of fathers is to be a safe um, person a safe attachment figure that the baby can leave the mother for and Mm. come back to so Mm. they're Mm. the one the only one who will uh, safely draw the baby away from yes, the mother. Yes, uh, that, that's absolutely lovely. And, and actually grandparents can play a big role mm. here too because there's, there's often a huge bond there. And, and kinship in general, I mean, you know, societies have different ways of different families. And it's, it's the amazing way the brain develops because our brains are designed to develop and adapt according to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So a little... Maasai baby born into the Maasai tribe will will grow up to be a a good Maasai child and and their brains will be adapted to that whole way of life. Likewise, unfortunately, a child living in a terribly neglected home with perhaps drug-addicted and alcoholic violent people around used to violence, that their brains will develop into trigger-happy, angry, stressed brains they're perfectly adapted for their environment ready to defend themselves and fight but Mm. put them in a normal primary school and it doesn't work Mm. but this is the brilliant aspect of brain development you know according to the environment 
that we find ourselves, they find themselves in, the brain will adapt to that environment. It's a brilliant system. Do, do you remember, and I'm sure you put me onto this research, the link between cortisol, yeah, I'm back to cortisol again, but higher levels of stress in boys and girls in nursery. With mm -hmm. boys, it's linked to aggression in primary school ages. And uh, with girls, higher levels of cortisol in the nursery is linked to anxiety in teenage years. Yes, yes, that, that's, you know that that's right. Um, that there is some quite interesting and deep science that shows how um, too much stress in the early years will create this link in girls with anxiety and depression and not in boys. That is the work of Berge, B-U-R-G-H-Y. Did some very interesting work on that, the way girls are affected by early life stress and separation. And, and you will get these 14, 15-year-old girls um, depressed, anxious, self-harming and so on. And, and that, that's a very important bit of research. Alan Shaw did the work with boys. Um, Alan Shaw is, is incredibly, profoundly good at this area of research. And uh, his work is, is very descriptive of, of why boys don't manage the separation in infancy quite as well as girls do, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's rather sweet. He's, he's, he's done some very interesting papers on that. Mm. But they come, but they act out. It comes out as aggression. Yes, so. yes. Um, the, the research um, here, I, I'm, I'm not as au fait with it as I should be, because I was so intrigued by the by the girls thing recently. But but certainly, um, Shaw's research shows that the the link to ADHD and and aggression if if boys are tested too much and, and overstressed too much in their early early months mm. and years yes and um, one of the other issues uh, well one of the really good things about when mothers can spend time with their babies is all about attachment can you tell us a bit more about um, mm. or a bit about what's going on when a child is well attached dear old attachment yes this, this <laughs> gets some people's danders up and some people uh, just accept it now that, that it's a very, very important part of a child's development to be well attached to uh, loved people who are concerned for it. Um, I was very, very touched by the work of Kim Barthel, who uh, spoke at a conference in 2010, and I remember noting down what she said about this, which was stunning to me. She said, attachment relationships are implicated in genetics, central nervous system interaction, neurotransmission, endocrinology, immunology, stress, and behavior regulation. I mean, that was an amazing list. And then she, she enlarged on this, uh, saying that the, the functioning of our genes, the switching of their activity on and off in severe cases, it appears, uh, that these can be passed down to the next generation that was mentioned. And then brain growth is reduced with constant uncontrolled stress and emotional neglect. Mm -hmm. The nerve cells, uh, which communicate to each other via the release of chemicals like noradrenaline, this is all released to an undergoing stress. And then the functioning of the hormonal regulatory systems, controlling our moods and our metabolism and bonding and reproduction, all these... Uh, and then uh, our future health and uh, the immune system is, is uh, also a function 
of, of what goes on with attachment. If, if there's poor attachment, if there's stress, then the immune system is affected and lifelong problems can arise. And uh, basically, the, the regulation of temperaments, uh, addiction and so on. We also know that, that um, if there's tremendous stress in infancy, and I'm, I'm talking about big stress here, I'm not talking about childcare, but, but huge stresses um, can lead to a, a much greater inclination to addiction in adult life. And we put terribly simply that the brain pathway for bonding with the mother is the same brain pathway as for addiction. I mean, it's much more complex than that. But if you have very poor bonding in infancy, you are more likely to have a flaky addiction centre. Mm. Your, your reward system is flaky. Is that because it has... Why is that? <laughs> oh, we, I wish I knew all these. And that, that, there's a man called Karkhanis who, who could tell you about this. K-A-R-K-H-A-N-I-S. He has done work on this and he will show you the brain patterns. So in, in sort of very lame and simplistic terms, if the baby hasn't bonded well or attached well to the mother or a primary carer, they are more at risk of possibly developing addiction issues. I think it's uh, again. This is this is a matter of degree. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it's all these things. Everything I've said throughout the whole podcast is all a matter of degree. Some children are far less affected than others. Some we don't know why are terribly badly affected. Mm-hmm. Some, depending on their home backgrounds, if their home backgrounds are good and sound and reliable, then they probably cope with a lot more. With this uh, addiction thing, it's probably that the, the more abusive homes where, where this mm. will happen, actually. Mm. Um, and, so it and might be a correlation. As, yeah, as yeah. So, yes, I mean, the, the yeah. work, the work, no, the causation work is there. The work of oh, okay. Mate, M-A-T-Q-E, Mate <laughs> will tell you yeah. all about that. If you look him up, he, he's very good on this link between uh, mothering and addiction. So how would you, uh, taking it sort of out of the scientific realm into the observational realm, what would you see between a mother and a baby if there was good attachment going on? How would oh, the baby be oh, responding? How, oh, what would the mother be doing? That was what I observed so much in my mother and toddler group. It, it was the, coming back to saying you treat the, the baby like a lover, you just adore this little being. You just don't want to be away from it. You want to touch and stroke and be close. Eye contact is terribly important. Voice and eye contact are, are firing the synapses all the time. Every time you see a mother gazing into the baby's eyes, you know its brain is being fired to grow and grow healthily. And it's the soothing, calming voice that will always take away the stresses and strains. Um, mother is so important as I say just just being there there's there's so much to just being that that is important but it is this incredible lover-like behavior uh, that that is so important and 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 that comes so naturally to most mothers as I say there are some that find this more of a struggle and and that is sad and and there are ways to help and and um, video interaction guidance is absolutely brilliant here um, what's, th- what's that? That, that's where um, they video a mother and the child playing together and show how the mother perhaps doesn't react very well to the child's signals and perhaps isn't sensitive to what the child is needing and so on and then the, 
then the person, the, 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 the counsellor and, and the mother look at the video together and they say, look, do you see there, the baby's trying to show you that and you're looking away and you're not worrying. And, and they'll say, oh, yes, yes, I see. And, and they can show how the mother and baby could bond better. And it's beautifully and tenderly and sensitively done. They do mm -hmm. excellent work, the video interaction guidance people. And that is one way that people have really helped to bond better with their child. Well, that touches on some research from California from uh, children of lower-income parents or from difficult backgrounds. They found they did a lot better in the home environment where the parents were receiving coaching rather yes. than taking them out of the yes. home environment into childcare. Yes. Because yes. the argument here is always, well, you know, some mothers are rubbish, so their children are better off in childcare. Yes, yes. If you can train the mothers, because if they haven't learned from their mothers, yes. Yes. eye contact and so on, then they that you can learn how to do the actions of mothering. Yes, oh, you're absolutely right. There's no question that with some homes that, that um, a baby in a good nursery is going to have more security and safety and, and, and help, and, and that, that is absolutely the case. But as you say, it is better if the mother-child dyad is held together rather mm. than separating them and just putting them in a, in a strange group. But that isn't always possible. And, and um, some childcare centres do very well and, and do all they can um, to, to um, actually to encourage attachment in, in the nurseries. I know Juna Sullivan in London and her nursery is there. They, they really work at this. They're, they're really good. They, they run fine nurseries and, the, and the, the, the helpers are trained in attachment and how to, how to be caring and loving and how, you know, if, if everybody was trained like Juna Sullivan's group, that, then nurseries would be a lot stronger. Um, I'm, we're very supportive of them and mm. what they do. And are they trained, again, I mean, we might have already said it, but what are they trained to do to be good? <laughs> well, if you... <laughs> come to our conference next year on March the 18th. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, um, they will tell us because they are coming to, to tell us um, mm. at the WATCH conference about uh, how, how they run their nurseries and, and mm. how they encourage attachment relationships and how they, they help children cope much better. Than they, they really work at this. They, they're really mm. conscious of the need to do this in a nursery situation and, and we're very appreciative. Are they, um, one thing you could ask, or I wonder is, are, are they able to pay their workers more? Because if you, it's all very well having really good attachment, but that nursery worker doesn't have to stay there. They could go somewhere else. If you're the mother, you're always mm. going to be the mother. If you're yeah. the nursery worker, they might leave. And if they're trained to be well attached, then what happens to you? Yes, but the they, they probably make sure that there are one or two, at least mm. one or two main attachment people, so that there's usually one of them always there, we'll or stay. even three. That, yes. But, you know, they will... They, I think they make sure that that, that just a single person, um, as you say, they, they can be ill, they can leave, they can, you know, have, be on a different shift or whatever. Um, and I'm sure, knowing what Juno Sullivan's heart is for, she, she will be covering that, that particular aspect. Mm. And, and so, that, so that's really what the government could be looking at. If they're going to ignore the value of the mother-child relationship and they're going to insist on two-year-olds going into nursery, then what they need to do is fund them properly. Oh, nine months old. Uh, nine months old. Uh, so that they can... Yeah. Oh, babies, as they come out of the hospital, going straight to nursery, um, so that at least they could 
fund them properly so they can develop attachment mm. relationships. Yes, and I'm, I mean, let's not forget, nurseries are brilliant for three to five-year-olds. Mm. That's what mm. they were originally designed for, three to five-year-olds, yes. to get them ready for school and to get them to socialise and to play with others. But babies aren't the same. To mix naught to threes with three to fives and, and call them under fives, preschoolers, and block them all together. This is the terrible error that's being made, and this is what we're all going on about, particularly organisations like What About the Children that concentrates on the first three years because they are so different from the three to fives. Everybody knows three to fives are totally different little animals. They're wonderful. They're mm. chatty. They play. They can talk. They communicate. They play with each other. Babies don't quite do that. Mm. They need this different sustenance and building. I think one of the, the big issues, and I'm sure you probably mentioned this before, is um, uh, communication, that a three-year-old can explain why they're upset. Yes, or yes, Maybe not why, but they can say, person's taken my toy. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> you know, yes. They can communicate, yeah, yes, but yes, baby right. is, it must be terrifying. I mean, yes, if he took yeah. me and put me in, a, I guess, a foreign country where I didn't speak the language and then put me in a stress environment where the things I have could be taken away at any point mm. and my family mm. suddenly disappear and I've got no idea when they're coming back, yes. then yes. I yes. find that quite stressful. And this, oh, this yes. all happens to babies. They yes. don't know when their mothers are coming back. Oh, and do you remember what we heard this morning from mm. Marie? And she said that yeah. she heads up a nursery or helps with a nursery anyway and she says that people don't realise how unhappy many of these children are mm -hmm. in, in my nursery. She said... That, they don't see them sitting for two hours by the door saying, when's my mummy coming back? And somebody else said, oh, you can't say that. You make mothers feel guilty. You mustn't say that. And that's a, that's a problem. I mean, these things will make mothers feel guilty, but I don't think guilt is always a bad thing. I mean, it, it should be, it's drawing you back to your baby, which is probably not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, it, but it's very hard out in society because many of these women have to go to work because they can't make ends meet otherwise. And that's why I think the government should step in and, and give us a level playing field and give money either for nursery care, if that's what's required, or, or give the same money to a mother who's given up her salary to look after her own child to, to uh, mm. help her stay with her child, which is much better on the whole for the child for the first 20 to 36 months, yes. Do you think the people making up the policies really don't know about the value of the mother-child bond? Or mm, I, I honestly do think that. Just I honestly think if people knew the consequences of a baby's brain being compromised in its development by too lengthy separation from the mother. Mm. Uh, it's a very scary thing. People don't want to hear this. They don't want to know, and, and it, it's not surprising. But it, it as I said, it, it, babies are all different, and some respond differently from others, and you always hope your baby is one that, that will be able to cope. But mm. 40, 50 hours a week from six to nine months, there's going to be some changes there. Mm. I, 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 mm. The research would point to that. And would you see, um, well, I see uh, a link between the increase in mental health issues in teenagers mm. and mothers mm. as well mm. with uh, this unnatural, literally unnatural separation at an early it is age. Really, Your brain's isn't having it? to work to cope with it, isn't it? Yes, it's interesting you use the word unnatural. I that, that's probably going to cause a bit of controversy. <laughs> but, but yes, I mean, it, it is. I, I mean, that was another thing in my Muslim toddler group that... That, that mothers were crying on my shoulder, saying, I've got to go back to work, and they were weeping and howling. 
they were having to leave their babies and, and that, that isn't right. They shouldn't be in that situation. Mm. It shouldn't be. I mean, it is. It's painful. These, these mothers are painful. And the other thing one mother said to me is that actually what we're doing, we're repressing our mothering instincts. Mm. We're, we're shoving down the guilt. We're shoving down the feelings because we couldn't cope otherwise. Mm. And um, I don't know if we are doing anything to our our system that might be passed down the generation. Are we going to be reducing mothering instincts? Mm. Is that passing down the generations too? I don't know. But it's a thought, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> but again, I don't know about that. That's just pure mm. conjecture. But if, if people are consistently ignoring a natural, a natural instinct mm. because they're being forced into that situation, that's not good for them. That's no. terribly sad. You know, we should sustain them and help them stay with their babies until they're at least two or three. Uh, you know, by giving mortgage holidays or, or reducing the rent for a while and then putting it on later on in life or something. I mean, mm. surely we can find ways so that mothers can have a choice. They haven't got a choice. They mm. just haven't. The only people who have a choice are the wealthy. And that's really, really bad. Yes, yes. That's rotten. We shouldn't have a society where the only people who can choose to stay with their baby are the rich. That is awful. Well, and, and sometimes, you know, people in that position, they've worked very hard to get to a certain career level and they maybe are literally ignorant of the impact of childcare mm. and they want to carry on working. That's um, right. But then they can maybe pay for a really good nanny, so it's not so bad. Well, <laughs> or they may be like my friend in the car park who hadn't a clue that they would feel that way for their mm. baby. And, and suddenly this career woman is, oh, fallen in love with this little scrap of life and yes, <laughs> yes. doesn't really want to go back, but, oh, it's my career, I must go back. And also <clears throat> the mentality of the child being born into the workplace because the mother has been to work, perhaps for 10, 15, even 20 years, and they haven't learned to build a home mm. for a child. It's, it's, it's alien, you know, that, that, that the child is born into the mental workplace of the mother. Normality for her is work, not home. Mm. So home building is, is, is something, again, that perhaps we're not terribly clever at. Um, in in, in the, the sort of, yes, why shouldn't we have careers? But mm. I don't believe a mother is equally available. Mm. If she considers herself equally available to a non-mother, then someone is paying the price. Mm, mm. Um, and just going back uh, to the, the link between the toddlers, say, and mental health in teenagers or older, is there, is there a reason why the um, I don't know, cortisol or whatever's going on in the toddler's brain might then come out at a later age? Hmm. Yes, the, 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 there's a lot of consequences of emotional neglect in infancy that comes out in a later stage, yes. Um, I'm, I'm not terribly good at, at all of that. As I say, the work of Alan Shaw and so on um, goes into that much more deeply, but, um, and, and uh, Berge's work on girls and so on. But we, we know too that probably the bonding systems are being weakened, so that's going to affect relationships. And also if the frontal cortex is poorly developed, and that's the area that's growing most rapidly in the early stages, if, if that if emotional neglect is, is affecting the development of the frontal cortex, then we know that that, that person will perhaps lack empathy. Mm. 
and, and they may be quite bright and good at their work, but they're hopeless at relationships. And I think we've all met people like that. They're highly successful, but they're no good at relationships. They, that, that, you know, their brains are fine. And that's, oh, so much of what the government emphasizes, school readiness. But what about emotional well-being? Mm. And, and I know when they were doing the early years foundation stage work 20 years ago, whenever it was, I was, I was there at a lot of the meetings. And they were using sort of words like curriculum for babies. I remember standing up saying, I'm sure you shouldn't use the word curriculum for babies. They said, oh, yes, yes, everybody has developmental targets to reach and so on. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. But well-being wasn't mentioned. Mm -hmm. It was all hitting the targets. And, and only now, when we've come bottom in so many <laughs> happiness scales and questionnaires as a, as a nation, we've always done terribly badly in these happiness things. <laughs> And they suddenly thought, oh, yeah, we must program well-being into everything. So over the last few years, we've had a bit more well-being shoved in. But it was an afterthought. Mm. <laughs> Emotional well-being. Well don't, don't put well-being in for the under threes, though. It, Emotional well-being, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, emotional well-being. They're trying to, well, I don't know, maybe there is. I but don't know, I hope so. I mean, I, I think... Emotional well-being is to be with your mother. <laughs> that, would be, that would be emotional well-being. Well, well -being. yes, yes. Um, um, but, but I'm afraid that the economic units of individuals is, is sort of what's important. Uh, that's the, the, oh, it's an economic no-brainer, isn't it? They say, we know that for a mother with her baby in childcare and going back to work is worth about 20,000 to the exchequer over four years with her, her which, tax. Which four years though? Well, <laughs> the, they... the first four years of the, before the child is school age. Is that net? That, that is from the tax from the, the, the mother and the child minder may be paying, but I mean, I don't think they will pay and much tax. the nursery tax. worker, do but, they factor in the, cost, the income from the nursery worker? Yeah, but they're right? often not taxpayers. But um, yeah. the, the, I did hear that figure mentioned that, that for, after four years, there's probably an extra 20,000 in the exchequer from a working mother. Mm. Um, with the, and that's an awful thought that, that, yeah. that um, and also we're not treated like family units anymore mm. it's individuals the individual woman the individual man mm. you know oh no we don't want marriage we don't want to be shackled you know they've got to be separate they've got to be independent but because of that that, that has caused a lot of this huge financial stress and yeah. pushed the mother away from the baby which is not good for the baby or the mother or society Yes, I think I think I go. I would question that twenty well, twenty thousand pounds figure because I'm not sure that's net of tax credits for the underpaid nursery workers or who are having to look after the child of the working mother. Yeah, well, you're probably, uh, you may be right. As I say, it was a figure that was quoted yeah, to me. But they but, will. But, they but, will but, maybe that's the figure they'll be using, but they're not thinking it through because they're not right. netting it off. Against you're you're the probably cost right. Of, um, uh, the cost of the yeah nursery workers are underpaid, so they'll be on tax credit. They will be giving working tax credit. They'll be giving nursery credits or whatever it is, childcare credits to the working parent, and so they might get twenty thousand in, but it'll probably cost them thirty thousand <laughs> to um, get it in. Yeah, I, I mean, if the mother's on twenty-five to thirty thousand herself, you know, mm. she'd be paying about five thousand tax probably. Exactly, but it's um, cost, but they're paying quite a lot for her child to be in full-time yeah, uh, yeah. nursery. But there must be, there will be a financial gain to the treasury of having mothers in work. That's why they're doing it. But at what cost to well, then you get society? you get back to the Caspi work, don't you? And uh, the uh, the mm. work on on what it costs to uh, look after mentally unwell and mm. stressed out people, unable to do their jobs, unable to make relationships. And yes. Was that the one where you, you know, by the time they're three, the 90% of people who are going to be 
causing the most economic oh, trouble. Oh, yes, that's right. Um, there's this famous 80-20 figure that crops up quite a lot in all sorts of different kind of work, but that uh, 80% of the welfare budget is spent on 20% of the population. Mm. Now, that was the finding of the Dunedin uh, research in, in New Zealand. In New Zealand. And, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's absolutely stunning. But and then you can tell this 20%, this eight, um, by the age of three, by their brain health. They mm. actually put it that. I mean, that's stunning. So that's and what's happened. Whatever's happened to them by the age of three has an impact on their life. Yes, they, they can tell. Yes, by then, the ones that are going to be these high cost. So this twenty percent will cost eighty percent of the welfare budget, mm. um, and that's covering health, mental health, prison people, all sorts. Not not just you know the health mm. itself, but the whole area of, of health and welfare and mental well-being and. And, and good citizenship and so on. And, yes. And being able to spot them by the age of three, by yes. their brain health. So, I mean, what we've been talking about is not airy-fairy stuff. There's mm. very solid economic consequences of not looking after babies properly. Yes, yes. I think I'll just... Actually, I will just finish on... I don't know if you know about this, the, the extra development in the teenage years where the brain goes through another... Yes, so there's, there's more plasticity then and, and some of the... If there have been problems in the early years, um, that, that, that there is ways of helping and healing and calming and restoring and so on. I mean, no one's a lost cause. I mean, I mean in some cases, like the Romanian orphans, I mean, there are extreme cases. We, we don't really, uh, the research there isn't really applicable to what we've been talking about. But on the other hand, you know, the brain doesn't suddenly go from large to tiny. Mm. There are degrees of emotional neglect. And you can just start and there can be just bits going wrong and so on. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the beginnings of emotional neglect, mm. that it's actually quite serious. If it was something physical like, you know, well, only one bone would be cracked or, mm -hmm. or, or smashed or not any use anymore or something. And we'd say, well, hang on a minute, you know, yes. I don't want to lose my little finger for life. Um, but the way emotional well-being, we, we are, I think, compromising it with some people sometimes with, yes. with, with our ignorance. But, but, you know, so much can be restored and helped and, and, and love in the home will, will, of course, make up for a, a lot of the stresses that will have taken place in the day. But I always come back to, to um, Steve Bidolf and, and his work and saying, you know, You've got to remember his mantra, he said, too much, too early, for too long. Mm. That's what you've got to try and avoid, too much mm. care away from the mother, too early in life, for mm. too long. Mm. If you can bear that in mind, I mean, you know, six, ten hours isn't going to, to cause any problems, ten to fifteen hours in order. But once you get to 30, 40, 50 hours mm. a week, then under one, and so on. And yes. I don't think you'd get away scot-free easily. You might. Yeah, I mean, some do. Mm. Uh, I think uh, even 10 hours with my son, he wouldn't, didn't want any time away from me. Maybe he was okay with his father, but there's no way under three he would yes. have been happy yes. with any time. But but I think it does come back to what you said earlier, that, that children are different. Mm. And I think the best approach is to be able to be flexible. So mm. you do mm. hear about some mothers who are able to scale back their working hours because they see their children aren't coping. Aren't thriving, yes. But again, yes. they're the wealthier yes. ones. Yes. It's, it's the poorer ones. And their yes. children, 
quite often you get, um, I, I hear you say about, you know, the better attached a child is before they are separated, the better they'll cope in mm. a way. Oh, yes, yes, of course. So and and, and, and yeah. if there's a secure relationship. But yeah. that's quite hard too. And certainly in the second year that, that um, they, could, they can get more distressed um, mm. being separated because they, they know. I mean, the first six months, um, a baby actually is, is, is pretty good at being hugged and loved by a lot of different people. It doesn't upset them too much. But the older they get, the more the more wary they get of others. They know, they know the best person they want to be with and so on. And, mm. uh, and that's why the separation anxiety is probably more acute in the second year. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I've heard it starts, it can start at nine months or so. When the mothers are finishing maternity leave is when separation anxiety is kicking in. It's a, yes, that's it's right. It's a perfect that's storm. Absolutely, absolutely right. <laughs> Just when exactly the baby right. recognises that there's danger in the yeah. mother leaving the room, the mother leaves the room and not only leaves the room, but has to put the baby in with a load of strangers. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think if you're going to put a, a child in a nursery, you need to do it gradually and, and, and bit by bit, if you can. Mm. I mean, that's the better way of doing it and not just suddenly separate for mm. 10 hours or 8 hours or whatever, but, but go with them to the group and stay with them as they're getting to know others and letting them get familiar and so on. If you do that, that takes away a lot of the sting mm. and, um, but, you know, that the cortisol will, will rise. I think it's very interesting that uh, a Panksepp who did some work on, on, on cortisol and oxytocin, and, and he said that uh, humans and animals prefer to spend more time with those who activate a strong release of, of opioids and oxytocin in their brain, and that children want to be with other children who have lots of oxytocin floating around in them mm -hmm. and the children who have lots of cortisol floating around and the, the other children tend to re reject those mm -hmm. children more the actual that's Gunnar Megan Gunnar said that I quote mm -hmm. from her children whose behavior caused other children to reject them are the ones with the highest cortisol levels in the classroom mm -hmm. I thought oh gosh that's Gosh. another aspect, isn't it? That's another aspect. And also it's going to be self-perpetuating because then they're going to be stressed because they don't have friends. Yes, they're not handling <sighs> stress. Yes, yes, uh. I know. Stress stress is the enemy for all of us. Stress yes. doesn't do any of us any good. Yes. But for a baby who doesn't even yet have a stress management system, that's why it's so bad for them. Mm. We program their stress management self-regulation system into them by our consistent, loving presence, however it's done. Well, thank you very much for that, Diana. That's really, really, really good. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I believe it's a really, really important and vital topic to know what's happening when children are taken away from their parents and put into external childcare. Um, not all the time, as Diana says, but in some cases. So uh, thank you for listening to it. Um, I was uh, talking with Diana just after the Mothers at Home Matter conference, which took place in London in November. And there we had some discussion about the term just a mum, that people uh, who are at home full time feel like if someone asks them what they're doing, they should say, oh, I'm just a mum. But actually, when you listen to the impact that mothers have on their children just by being there, if you remember that research that Diana spoke about, that just in the first overnight of a baby's birth, their stress levels will go up if they're not with their mother. Uh, just by being there, mothers are having a massive effect on their children's brains and they're able to love them. 
And then there are also ways in which mothers can show their love and can care for their children properly by being when, well, when they're at home, of course, they can care for their children properly whenever they're with them. But just by being at home, just by being a mum, you are making a difference to your child's life. And actually, it is really, I mean, everyone knows it's really hard work being at home full time. And actually, one of our speakers said that some of the mothers she talks to feel that they really are better mothers being out at work uh, for at least some of the week rather than with their children. And that's a, I think that's very sad personally that uh, mothers feel that they are not of value at home and that actually they are, it's better for their self-esteem and for everyone involved if they're at work. And it, the problem is it probably is actually true. And that's because there is such a lack of mothers in the workplace, in the, in the home, there's massive overuse of mothers in the workplace. So few mothers at home that actually it can be really, really lonely. And you definitely question yourself when every single politician wants you to go out to work and will give you money to leave your children with someone else because they value what you're doing at home so little that they think you're much better off paying a few hundred pounds a year in tax rather than uh, giving uh, all your love and all your time to your children. So no wonder mothers really do feel like they're better off at work and probably are better off at work. And what we need is um, a reversal of all these policies, uh, proper funding of families so that they can afford to be at home um, if that's what they want, if they can arrange the hours and so on and so forth, so that they feel that they're valued. And all those toddler groups uh, can start up again. Uh, there's, if you are at home on your own, the best thing to do, if at all possible, is to volunteer to, to help run a toddler group or volunteer um, wherever you can, really, and get out in the community. That's another thing that's very much lost from our streets these days is just people at home during the day who maybe have some time and capacity to give to other people. Everything we do in society now is paid for and they don't, uh, they don't value volunteering so much. But a mother who is at home full-time, who has a really good support network of other mothers in the same situation will start to feel valued and will feel like there is a point to being at home. Um, Another thing, obviously, we've lost is the extended family. So when uh, mothers were at home in years gone by, not so much my mother, because we lived in the other end of the country to her, our, parent, our grandparents, or actually in different countries to our grandparents. But a lot of mothers in the past had the support of the grandmother. And actually, maybe they could work a few days a week because the grandmother would look after the children or they, they felt supported because they had someone to call on. But these days, mothers at home full time really are very isolated. Uh, of course, there's online forums and uh, Mothers at Home Matters got a Facebook page which encourages mothers and there are the groups you can get involved with online and, and I think that really is a big help but it, it's very sad that actually uh, for some mothers mental health really they do feel like they need to be in an office um, their children therefore need to be in childcare, and uh, that's the only way they're going to feel valued. So um, that's the, the state this country has got to. So I hope that um, you found this podcast useful. Please feel free to share it. Uh, we're hoping to put some bite-sized pieces up on the Mothers at Home Matter pod, um, webpage at some point. And if you'd like any of the research 
written down in a format you can forward to an MP or, or a candidate, then uh, please let me know and I'll, I'll try to send it to you in due course or as soon as possible. Um, uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook. I am Mothers Matter Podcast and uh, Twitter. I'm at Podcast Mothers and my email address is mothersmatter at outlook.com. Uh, my name's Claire Pay. Oh, sorry. Also, just to say, um, if you are interested in this topic, if you can listen to podcast number five about mothers and guilt, um, Erica Commissar, who's a New York psychoanalyst, she talks really well about the bonding process in the under threes, but also about how the teenage years are a really good, a really busy time of brain growth. Um, the next busy time after under threes and actually there's a great window of opportunity there to put a lot of time into your children and give them the security and attachment that um, may have been missing in the past for reasons beyond your control but of course that that leads us into the importance of mothers being at home in the teenage years and many mothers now say actually they feel the teenage years are the really important years to be around so anyway I'd, I'd like to recommend that podcast to you and the next one coming up is on um, taxation, which actually sounds a bit dry, but it's a fascinating podcast. I've already recorded it. And that just is the third leg to this stool of family-friendly policies, um, childcare and taxation, which if uh, the politicians could follow the recommendations in these podcasts, they'd be able to set up a family-friendly society where children can be looked for in the set and looked after in the setting that's best for them. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mothers Matter. Thank you to James Ede from Be Heard, who has done the audio production. And thank you to Mothers at Home Matter for all their support. If you have any positive comments, anything nice to say, please write to mothersmatter at outlook.com. If you feel it's really necessary, please send any constructive feedback to the same address, mothersmatter at outlook.com. And please do subscribe. I really, really would love it if you would subscribe. I'm hoping to do a number of very interesting interviews and to give a voice to mothers everywhere. My name is Claire Pay and you've been listening to the Mothers Matter podcast. Thank you.